0: Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the World Footprints Radio Book Club. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. If you think you know New York, chances are you probably haven't seen that great city through the eyes of Dorothy Parker. Until now. Author Kevin Fitzpatrick... No relationship to us that we know of, but Kevin takes us on a journey into Dorothy Parker's colorful career and intense personal life in New York with today's book club reading, A Journey into Dorothy Parker's New York. Kevin helps readers experience the edgy mood of the city during Dorothy's time, and he generously shares a treasure trove of photos, art, and street maps. Kevin Semper Fi, and thank you for joining us on today's World Footprints Radio Book Club.
0: Thanks for having me on. I'm just so excited, and thank you for uh, letting Dorothy Parker take over your show for the uh, for the time today.
1: It's our pleasure. You know, but I'm curious: with all the great talent that New York has birthed or claimed, why your focus on Dorothy Parker?
0: Well, I just I like her um, first as a writer. I, I think that um, things that she wrote. Um, so many years ago are still um, still uh, popular and have a lot of relevance today. I like the era she was in. I love Jazz Age New York, um, the music, the fashion, the style, the the whole milieu of what was going on in New York at the time. And I also like you know what she stood for. Um, she was very strong-minded. She believed in social justice, um, but she was also very you know fun and witty and very clever too. So I think all those things together. I am be a big Rippy Parker fan.
1: Mm-hmm. This is your second edition print. How many years transpired between the first and second edition, and what new discoveries did you make the second time
0: around? Uh, there's about six years um, between the two when the first, the first edition came out. Um, with any kind of travel book, you always want to keep it updated. You know, businesses close. Um, transit stations move, um, things like that, but also gave me a chance to add a lot of photos and artwork um, that weren't available to me um, six, seven years ago when I was doing the research, particularly um, images of old New York City that were on glass plate negatives at the Library of Congress um, that have been digitized. So I swapped out some about 50 pictures and put um, new ones of um, some of the places. Um, a few of the um, locations in the book there 's about hundred locations in the book. Um, a few of them are updated and um, um, new information added too.
1: When I received your book i don 't see this as a typical travel guide book. I love how you fused history uh, with basic travel information, but it 's not a general go to place or like general travel guide that that points you to specific places for you know a specific um, uh, say restaurant uh, that serves Italian food or, or anything of that sort, and and so I love how your style has really created an artwork.
0: Thanks very much for for pointing it out. I mean, I work in Times Square. I work on, I actually, work on 44th and Broadway, and I so I see tourists every day when I when I go to work um, for my day job. And one thing about New York City is, no matter where you're standing, something was going on over the last. 400 years and even if you are think you know where you are you might not really realize that you know the the restaurant you're looking at used to be a theater or um, this part of Manhattan you know used to be a swamp and you know that's why there's no skyscrapers in it and so walking around Manhattan even if you've been there many many times There's always something new, and there's always something you might not have known about that took place in that particular spot, and that's what I tried to pack into the book.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you to uh, read a a passage from your book and and set it up for us, Kevin.
0: Sure. Well, one of the things um, about Dorothy Parker is there's a lot of famous writers from New York, of course, and a lot of people that went to New York to make their fame and fortune that people know about but I think Parker, um, unlike a lot of others, is really of the city, and I don't think that you could have put her in other cities if she had been born in Kansas City or something. I don't think the same kind of writer would have come about, and I think that her writing is so infused in the city that when you read her her poems or her short fiction, they are so of Manhattan, and you can just picture The taxi cabs and the speakeasies and the bootleggers and things and the couples having arguments just come right off the page with her. So what this is about, this little section from the first chapter, is is really setting the scene about uh, Dorothy Parker in New York. Few of the writers have portrayed any city with as much keen and insightful detail as Dorothy Parker did when writing of Manhattan. She belongs to an impressive club of New York City writers, Edith Wharton, Walt Whitman, Herman Melville, Zora Neale Hurston. J.D. Salinger, native sons and daughters who evoke, through their work, a city that is as live and vibrant today as when they penned their words. In Dorothy Parker's New York, the speakeasies are, are always hopping, the party is just beginning, and all the taxicabs cabs hold couples on their way to an affair. Dorothy Parker herself was a Manhattan confection, equal parts bootleg scotch, Broadway lights, speakeasy smoke, skyscraper steel, streetcar noise, and jazz horns. She's a product of the city struggling economically, on the verge of enormous power and influence Dorothy, the precocious offspring of a Jewish father and a Protestant mother would not have been comfortable in turn of the century Los Angeles with its dirt roads and deplorable culture Chicago at the time was a cow town a place of stockyards, not sophistication and puritanical Boston certainly had no room for the likes of her
1: You're listening to the World Footprints Radio Book Club. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick, and I'm joined by author Kevin Fitzpatrick, who just read a passage from his book, A Journey into Dorothy Parker's New York. I have to say, I love Dorothy Parker, and unbeknownst to me, I guess I've been channeling her a lot over the years um, with, you know, when I exclaim, you know, what the hell? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which I know is a phrase attributed to, to her. Your book is part of the Art Place series. Tell us a little bit about that series and how you became involved with us.
0: Sure. I, I'm very, very pleased to be part of the Art Place series. Um, my book was the first in the series. It's the brainchild of Roaring Forties Press in Berkeley, California. And what they do is they take a writer and artist and really bring you into that world. So what the Art Place series does is it takes... The traveler, or the armchair traveler, you don't even need to leave your house into the world of that writer or artist through pictures, maps, and stories.
1: We've been talking to author Kevin Fitzpatrick about his book, A Journey into Dorothy Parker's New York, and we're also joined by two listener reviewers who have enjoyed learning more about Dorothy Parker's New York. I'm pleased to introduce uh, Karen Powell, an attorney and freelance writer from Maryland. Thank you for joining us, Karen. You're quite welcome. And I'd also like to introduce Sigrid Rich, also an attorney and creative writer from Maryland. Hi, Sigrid. We have a lot of, uh, you know, legal creative talent on this show today.
2: Thank you for having
3: me, Tanya.
1: Karen, it's it's a pleasure to meet you. Um, what is your comment or question for Kevin?
3: I um, enjoyed, first of all, reading the book. Um, I didn't read it as a traditional book. I found myself going back and forth, um, just enjoying the pull-outs from the info boxes and I'm wondering what would be the most frequent question that people come away with um, about Dorothy Barker
0: I think the number one question people ask is why do I think that she is still read today and why she's still in print and I think part of it is things she wrote about in the 20s and 30s are are things that still people care about today I mean getting your heart broken it doesn't matter if it was written in 1929 is still appropriate in 2013, um, she was writing about bad bosses and bad relationships and um, jerks and bigots, and uh, we certainly still have a lot of those around today. And so I think that's why she is still popular.
1: Secret, uh, what are your thoughts about a journey into Dorothy Parker's uh, New York? And and what questions do you have for Kevin?
2: Hi, Kevin. Um, I really enjoyed your book. I was not familiar with Dorothy Parker uh, prior to reading um and she certainly is um quite an interesting entertaining um character as well as a writer and social activist but my question is um if she were alive today um what neighborhood in new york would inspire and excite her do you think would she still be a manhattanite or would she um perhaps venture into brooklyn or um some other part of a of the growing and changing new york present today
0: we know that's a fantastic question, and you know your stuff because, you know, Parker um, grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, which is pretty much unchanged from when she lived here. Unlike the Upper East Side, which keeps getting demolished and remade and um, you know redeveloped, um, most of Dorothy Parker's former apartments are still around on the West Side. Um, but I think you're right. If she was just starting out today, and she was 28 years old. She probably would live in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, or around Park Slope. Um, Brooklyn is is the happening uh, community for uh, young, creative people. Um, Even if she was still born on the Upper West Side, she probably would have not liked to live in such a residential area. And, you know, that part of Brooklyn is is really hopping with a lot of um, great places to hang out. And also, Brooklyn is the home of the new Dorothy Parker American Gin um, which debuted about a year and a half ago in Williamsburg, and there's actually a distillery um, right on the border of Williamsburg and Greenpoint, and they're open for tours. You can actually take a tour and watch uh, gin and whiskey be distilled, and they have a little place next door to, to sample it, too, so it's, it's a great uh, tour. Um, but I, I think it's um, a good question. I, I think that she would have fit in uh, probably to Brooklyn or maybe Astoria, Queens, with the great you know great diners and fantastic restaurants, and just off the subway right there.
1: You know, I have to admit, I didn't know very much about Dorothy Parker. I hadn't read any of her writings, really, Kevin, um, but I have become intrigued uh, because of this book. And I'm curious, I want to ask uh, Karen in secret, how much of, about Dorothy Parker
3: did you ladies know before reading this book? Karen? I didn't really know much about Dorothy Parker before reading the book. I knew who she was, but I hadn't explored her writing and I think one of the things that I really appreciated in the book were the excerpts from her poetry, which made it just it made her more concrete for me, even with the places that she visited and lived, knowing um, or having her words as well.
0: I'm glad you said that because um, I was originally hesitant to put in passages of her work because I, as I explained to my editor, I always thought the people would, that would buy this book would already own her books of poetry and short fiction and there's a book called The Portable Dorothy Parker which is kind of like her greatest hits. I thought this would be a companion to it, but I'm glad you said that because this this is um, it, the, I put like a little doses in to give you a flavor of her writing.
1: Secret. How, how did you know about Dorothy Parker before reading this book, or how much did you know about her?
2: Um, I honestly didn't know anything at all about Dorothy Parker, um, and I'm surprised I hadn't come across her. Um, in my, I was an English major and um, never came across uh, in, any of her work, um, but after reading the book, I'm, I'm very inspired to go and learn more about her. I am planning a visit to New York later on this month, so I'll be sure to... Uh, kind of walking her footsteps while i 'm up there, but um I found her it, after reading the book um, just to be a multi layered uh, woman with so much um, uh, of her life being inspired by or just highly affected by the way she grew up um, kind of got a sense that she was an outsider and just had this restlessness about her like it felt like her life was in constant constant transition and um I was really struck by the amount of political activism that she was involved in, and I was just I, wondering if she were alive today, what causes would um, would earn her activism.
0: I well, you know, because you guys all live in Baltimore, you have a, a greater tie to Dorothy Parker than a lot of other cities because her remains are interred there at the NAACP headquarters, um, which is a which ties into their politicalism because. Um, no spoilers here, she left her estate to Dr. King. Right. Um, a man she never met, but she was a strong believer in social justice, and that's why she left her her estate to him. And then when he was assassinated 11 months later, the estate rolled over to the NAACP, and that's why her um, ashes end up at their headquarters and are in a little memorial garden outside um, their offices. I think today, she, if she was still, I'm pretty sure she'd be her politics wouldn't have changed very much. Um, she'd probably have had something very interesting to say about gay marriage. She probably would have been involved in a lot of things um, related to um, anything relating to social justice, the death penalty she was against. She was arrested only once in her life, and that was in Boston protesting executions back and Benzetti, who are anarchists. So I think she would probably have been, um, had a lot to say about uh, you know, anti-war movement and peace movements and things like that, too, because that's what she was really involved in 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 the uh, 30s, 40s, and 50s.
1: You're listening to the World Footprints Radio Book Club, and we're talking with author Kevin Fitzpatrick about his dynamic historical guidebook, A Journey into Dorothy Parker's New York. We're also joined by listener reviewers Karen Powell and Sigrid Rich. Kevin, I'm, I'm curious. You know, all of us uh, have, have said that we didn't really know very much about Dorothy Parker. She's a great American writer, and why do you think this great American writer has gone so under-recognized and so underappreciated for all of these years?
0: Well, part of it is, you know, what you're taught in freshman English class or what is in vogue with, you know, professors and, and teachers at the time. Um, Parker was a contemporary of Hemingway and Fitzgerald. Um, She was enormously popular in her time. But what happens is a lot of professors will write her off because she was too popular. You know, she was writing about getting her heart broken or drinking or loving dogs or things like that. So she's not included in the great canon of American literature. And unless you're taking a class that includes, you know, American poetry or Women writers or um, 20th century female writers, um, she, she won't get the same kind of recognition um, academically that um, some of her, her peers or her betters would have, like Sinclair Lewis or or John O'Hara or um, you know maybe other people that were in the New Yorker at the same time. So that's probably what happens. Usually, what happens with with Parker is people discover her in in high school or college when someone turns her on turns them on to one of her short stories and then they seek out the poems um, that's that's what's been my experience
1: and and now your book i think will be uh, a wonderful springboard to further learning opportunities about her um you lead and secret will be interested in knowing this you do lead guided tours around new york um guided dorothy parker tours is there a a spot that you feel visitors can really get a sense of her is there a place that really just channels dorothy parker
0: the lobby of algonquin hotel i mean it's a literary landmark and she lived there she worked there she had um drinks and ate lunch with her friends there for 10 years it's a it's a landmark and it's such a nice place to go to Uh, free wireless (laughs) <laughs> that's all and um is. very cozy, very cozy. I do all the walking tours are on DorothyParker.com um for anyone that's interested this list I just gave one last Saturday to a group of people um two of them were in from from uh, uh San Francisco actually um It's a great way to see the city because even if you are been to New York many many times, you know you will pick up little um tidbits and and I call them dining out stories. you can tell your friends about certain areas of, like, Rockefeller Center, which is where all the speakeasies used to be before Rockefeller Center was built in 1930. So there's a lot of things about not just Dorothy Parker history, but New York history and American history are all tied into um, to the walks, too. Mm-hmm.
1: You, you also founded the Dorothy Parker Society. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: Well, what happened there is I started DorothyParker.com in 1998, which was... Um, a, a list of places that she lived and worked in the city that became the basis of the book and within a very short time it got very popular and people wrote to me and said Would you take us on you know a tour of these places and what happened is we ended up having such a great time that we wanted to do it again and so the society started and the Dorothy Park Society um, exists to promote her work and get people to keep reading her, writing about her, talking about her, putting on, you know, plays based on her work. Um, But we don't have meetings, we have parties because we want to be like Dorothy Parker and she would never go to an organization that had meetings and presented academic papers. So we have um, monthly parties where we have vintage cocktails, Um, we listen to jazz from the 20s and 30s, and everybody dresses up in vintage clothes.
1: That sounds like a good time, actually. (laughs) It resonates with me. Um, I I just want to give in the last uh, couple of minutes that we have left, I want to go back to uh, both Karen and Sigrid and ask if uh, there are any other uh, questions they have for you, um, starting with Sigrid. Uh,
2: No, I don't have any further questions at this time, but I will definitely be looking into uh, taking one of your tours in the near future.
0: Thank you so much.
3: Karen? I just have one quick question. Um, about her writing. Um, In the later years, you point out that it was growing and maturing. And I'm wondering if her lack of creative outlet was because of her fan base, if they weren't also growing and maturing, and were they not prepared for her um, to do the same?
0: Part of it is related to the New Yorker magazine, where she sold a lot of her short stories and fiction to... Um, they wanted her to keep writing, you know, funny, humorous pieces that she had written when she was in her 30s. Then when she was in her 50s, they said, "Well, you don't write like you used to write." And part of it is because she got very political, um, and she was a m- more mature person. So, you know, they were expecting a 55-year-old woman to write like she did when she was 30, and you know, that's really one of the reasons that a lot of it um, dropped off. She just didn't feel like she wanted to write um, light verse anymore. Um, you know, getting your heartbroken stories, you know, in your 20s and 30s are one thing, but when you're pushing 60, um, it's not really um, a marketplace, I don't think, for her.
1: Her her life was a bit scandalous. Um, is there anything, you seem to have known a lot about her uh, before even writing this book, to you know, the, your founding of the Society and what have you. Are there things, though, that you discovered uh, that surprised even you?
0: Um, I think some of the things I discovered is that she was very, um, um, very generous to her friends and to a fault. Um, she owned a Picasso that she gave away to Lillian Hellman. Um, she, you know, one of her, um, nieces really admired a watch she was wearing. So she just took it off and gave it to her as a Cartier. Um, so she had a big heart. And, um, so I think that really was something that I was kind of surprised to, to learn, I thought she might be a little bit cold or jaded or, or something like that when she became famous, but quite the opposite. She you know, was very um outgoing and, and caring person.
1: Uh, you know, she was born uh Dorothy she had a um a Jewish surname, um, what was that? Rothschild. Yes, Rothschild. And so how did that how did she make the transition to to Parker? Was uh Parker a name that she selected because of you know, the, the um, ethnic uh, surname, or is that a name that she married into?
0: She married a guy named um, Eddie Parker, who was a stockbroker. And uh, they married in 1917, um, shortly before the war. And they divorced about five years later. And she kept his name. And she's like to say that she liked his clean sounding Protestant name. Um, And she stayed Mrs. Parker for the rest of her life, even when she remarried in 1934 to another um, guy named Alan Campbell. She never took his name. Um, So she just kept the byline. But I think part of it is she just wanted to lose her um, identity of her parents and just, you know, kind kind of be a new person at that time.
1: Did, did any of her writings focus on some of the uh, uh, racial challenges, or, I mean, really, really focus on, I know she touched on uh, some of the um, uh, social injustices during her time, um, but were there some controversial pieces that she created uh, that spoke to those issues?
0: Yes, 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 Tanya. It's a very good question. She wrote a story called Arrangement in Black and White in the 20s, and it was a story about, Uh, two women at a dinner party, and there's a black singer who's at the party. Now, it's a very thinly veiled reference to Paul Robeson, who was um, very popular at the time. He was a very, very um, important Broadway star and the first big name on Broadway, um, African-American. So she was really attacking racial intolerance and prejudice at the time. When the New Yorker ran they just thought it was a funny story. They weren't reading between the lines that what it was really about was prejudice and 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 racism, and to see that in the mainstream white magazine in 1928 was pretty surprising. So when she did get involved in the civil rights movement in the 50s, she already had her credentials because she had already been you know poking fun of it or or making light of it for a number of years, um, and that that the story is in the, the portable Dorothy Parker.
1: Okay. Kevin, I, I want to switch gears just very, very slightly um, because we do have, as you know, uh, two aspiring writers uh, on the show with us today, and I'm wondering um, what advice you have for them.
0: I think a big part of, um, if you, well, first I'll talk about the, the creative side, and the creative side is, you know, read and write every day. Um, the business side is, you know, it's very important, I think, for networking. Um, one of the things I'm doing for myself in in September is I'm going to be at the Brooklyn book festival and I'm going to share a booth with another writer who we don't write the same thing, but we're in the same kind of genre of 1920s. Um, and I think it's important to network and get to know other writers and editors, um, on a, you know, a, a social level and, you know, kind of a professional level too, so that you can bounce ideas off and, you know, maybe trade ideas for, um, networking with, um, uh, you know, editors and publishers. Um, I, I think I'm a big fan of social media. Um, I follow a lot of writers. Um, I always want to, you know, read up on what they have to say on, you know, Twitter and Facebook and Pinterest, um, even Instagram. You know, a lot of them are on there, too. So I think all of those things um, can really help a writer in 2013.
1: And what about finding a, an agent and, uh, you know, a publisher,
0: well, I'm kind of the worst person for that advice because um, I've they've approached me and um, uh, I haven't um, used an agent. Um, but I have helped a couple of friends get agents. And what I do is I always recommend, um, it, say you're writing a book about um, how to fix your house. Go out and find what is the number one story, what's the number one book about fixing your house? Get the book, look in the credits, and find out who their agent is. <laughs> because if the, author is, if the author is thanking their agent for selling a book about that subject, that you know that's the kind of author and agent that you want to you know approach. Um, there are specific agents just for, say, um, erotic fiction, just like there's specific authors just for history or. You know any other kind of you know nonfiction genre, so you don't want to send you know your queries to agents that have no connections to to that field. So I think doing your your legwork and you know if you want to be the next Susan Orlean, find out who Susan Orlean is rep by is is a good start.
1: Good deal, well Kevin, um, it's it's been a, a pleasure. Uh, just real quick. You were former Marine, and so how did you go from Marine to, you know, active duty to what you're doing now? That's a big transition. Well, the,
0: fir- the first thing they teach you is how to listen. <laughs> if you don't listen, you get in a lot of trouble and you do a lot of push-ups. Um, but one of the things that the Marines, I think, other than the other service branches, is they really stress history. And uh, they really stress, you know, knowing, your, you know, the traditions, and, uh, you know, paying attention to where you come from. And um, I did a lot of writing. That was my job in the Marines. I was in public affairs. And I think, you know, they they really stress, um, you know, being uh, very organized, um, being very detailed, um, and knowing, you know, where your mind, your P's and Q's. So I think the self-discipline I learned uh, in the service certainly got me through college and uh, definitely into the media in New York. (laughs)
1: Yeah, and you you certainly have to be disciplined uh, as, as a writer. A Journey into Dorothy Parker's New York offers a rich exploration into the New York of past and a fresh way of exploring in present day. After reading this book you are promised to see New York from a different angle. If you want to learn more about Dorothy Parker and experience her New York, we have a link to A Journey into Dorothy Parker's New York on our website at worldfootprints.com. And while there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. View our new discovery tours, including scheduled trips to New Orleans and China, and follow us on your favorite social network. Thank you for joining us on this literary journey today, and many thanks to author Kevin Fitzpatrick for sharing Dorothy Parker's New York with us. And also, uh, thank you to our panel of listener reviewers, Karen Powell and Sigrid Rich. And of course, I have to also thank the man behind the scenes, my co-host and husband, Ian Fitzpatrick. If you'd like to join World Footprints Book Club as a listener reviewer, please email us at bookclub at worldfootprints.com. George Martin said, A reader lives a thousand lives before he dies. The man who never reads lives only one. So join us next time as we experience another life in a new world through a writer's pen on the next World Footprints Radio Book Club. Until we meet again, happy reading.
0: This has been a presentation of World Footprints Media, all rights reserved.
3: By adding Seneca Falls, New York to your travel plans, you're opening yourself up to a remarkable part of history. You may know that Seneca Falls is the birthplace of the U.S. women's rights movement in 1848. But did you know that the idea for Seneca Falls Conference started in London, England in 1840? Interested in finding out more? Visit Suffrage Wagon News Channel, suffragewagon.org.